The practice of meditation, whether we're doing the metta practice, developing loving-kindness, or in vipassana, developing and strengthening mindfulness, it all starts with gathering in the mind and collecting the attention. That's the basis of all of the meditation. Sometimes it reminds me this process of collecting the attention. Reminds me of training uh, a little puppy, you know, that's just a couple of months old and full of energy and jumping around, and you want to train it to stay. And so you kind of push it down, stay, and then, like about a second and a half later, it's up and running around and stay. You need a lot of loving patience, but after some time, the puppy finally, a month or two or three later, <laughs> catches on, you know, a little bit, and it actually does stay when you tell it to. Well, in some way, we're training the puppy of our minds you know, to stay on the object. As this develops, as this steadiness, this ability to stay more collected, more one-pointed, more concentrated. There's a steadiness and an openness that begins to happen. And in that openness, tremendous amount of accumulated impressions that we've been carrying in our minds and bodies, these accumulated impressions start to show themselves. They start to surface. We become aware sometimes for the first time, of different tensions and pains in the body, perhaps tensions that we've been carrying for our lifetime, you know, or accumulating over a lifetime. But until we become a little still, until we actually turn our attention inward, we may not even be aware of it on a conscious level. So we could be carrying all this tightness, all this tension, not knowing it, come to retreat, sit down, study the mind, create some space, and we begin to feel the tension in the back, the neck, the head, the jaw. Old memories start to surface. It's not only physical tensions that we carry. In the space of a collected mind, a concentrated mind, lots of impressions, memories, we become aware of them. And they're of both the skillful things that we've done in the past, and we might have very fond memories, but also we start recalling the unskillful things we've done. Sometimes it's with tremendous remorse or regret. These memories can be tremendously vivid and intense. At one point, to back up the story a little bit. I was in the, after college, I was in the Peace Corps uh, in Thailand teaching English. And as part of the training, for some reason we were training in DeKalb, Illinois in the winter, <laughs> which is a lot like this, to go to Thailand. <laughs> so that was really appropriate. <laughs> but then at the end of that, we, they rewarded us with two weeks on Hawaii. Uh, on the big island in uh, Waipio Valley, which is this beautiful remote valley. So part of the training there, uh, and this was a group of people going to teach English, 
uh, was to kill chickens. <laughs> and I remember this so vividly. I was just in this really deluded state of mind. And even though it was a very an unpleasant task, I, you know, I'm a little squeamish. I thought, I'm a man and I ought to be able to do this. <laughs> and so we pair off and my friend got to hold the chicken and I had the knife. And, <laughs> and afterwards, I was still completely deluded. You know, I have this picture of myself just after the fact, holding this poor scrawny chicken. I just chopped its head off and this big smile on my face. You know, it's like, look what I did. Years later, I'm in India practicing and had been in intensive practice for quite a while and this memory starts coming up and it was horrible. I mean, I really took how many years to actually get there for what happened. And as I began reliving it, you know, in the, with the vividness of mindfulness and attention, it was really terrible. I saw clearly, I mean, basically I just murdered this living being. I went through days of tremendous remorse about it. And it was just striking that it was the practice of mindfulness creating the inner space that allowed it to come up and allowed me to see it and to go through it. Sometimes there are difficult emotional patterns, not, not only physical sensations or memories, either good or bad, but sometimes in the course of practice, in the space of collected attention, are different patterns of emotional response get very obvious. You know, we see patterns of whatever they are, fear or guilt or ill will or generosity or kindness or compassion. As we're watching our minds, all these impressions surface and we see so clearly the patterns that are there. Very often we get lost in these stories. You know, we get so identified with them. Whether it's of the emotions or of the memories or of the physical energy, we get so lost in the content in the story that we forget that actually what's happening with all of these is a great purifying process. When these things surface, when we finally make the space and have the inner calm to allow them to come up, what's happening is that we're allowing for the purification of all of these forces within us. It's an emptying process. And it's emptying out things and patterns which we have been holding, often unconsciously, for a very long period of time. So even though it can be difficult, especially when it's unpleasant aspects that are surfacing, we need to hold it in the context that a cleansing is happening, and it is happening. And I felt it very deeply with that uh, Peace, Corps, Peace Corps incident. As I could relive it and go through the remorse and regret, my mind actually felt freer. 
because I had been there for it. One monk had a really good phrase for this process. He called it a general housekeeping of the mind. So that's what you're doing. You're basically stirring up a lot of dust and dirt and everything else. And it's this general house cleaning of the mind that's taking place. As we clean up the house a bit, the house of our minds, we begin to see much more clearly and directly for ourselves what qualities in our minds lead to greater happiness for ourselves and for others. And we begin to see very vividly what qualities, aspects of our minds, lead to greater suffering for ourselves and others. The Buddha laid out what we might call an ethical psychology of the mind. He had an extremely sophisticated and profound analysis of the nature of consciousness, of how all the different factors of mind work together, some skillful, some unskillful. He saw, to put it colloquial language, he saw what leads to what. What leads to happiness? What leads to suffering? And in the light of our own growing awareness, we can see this for ourselves. It's not so difficult. Just as a few very simple examples. What is the effect of greed on the environment? It's so obvious. We see the effect and we suffer the effect of this mind state that's within us all of greed as it plays itself out. What's the effect of envy or jealousy or impatience on our interpersonal relationships? What are the effects of these mind states? We don't have to be a rocket scientist to see this. (laughs) They create suffering. Suffering for ourselves, suffering for others. What are the effects within ourselves, within our own minds, of fear, of unworthiness, pride? Now, when we look, this becomes very obvious to us. What are the effects of the qualities of generosity, of kindness, of love? So we need to bring our attention to actually see what is so clearly there for us to see. Our mind states create the inner world that we inhabit. We're all living in the world, the inner world of our own minds. And our mind states influence the world around us. So we understand all this through the practice of collecting the attention, gathering in the scattered mind, getting more concentrated, steadier, seeing the purification process of all the accumulated impressions arising. Through that clarity we see, yes, some things lead to suffering, some things 
lead to peace, to happiness for ourselves, for others. Through our own observation of this, we can bring the whole essence of the path really down to one point. And that is to see that our training in the metta practice, our training in mindfulness, all comes down to the purification of our motivation. In some traditions, there's the phrase, which I think is so accurate and so far-reaching in implication, where it says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Because it's not from the action itself that we can determine its quality. We have to see what is the motive behind it. Is the motive greed? Is it generosity? Is it love? Is it ill will? Everything rests on the tip of motivation. There are two stanzas in a collection of the Buddha's verses very famous collection called the Dhammapada. It's just it's a very small book of uh, teachings in verse form. The very opening lines of this point to this importance of us understanding our motivation. It says, and of course you have to realize this is set in 5th century BC India, so that if we speak or act with an impure mind, unhappiness follows us like the wheel of the ox cart follows the foot of the ox. I don't know if you have this picture in your mind, those of you who have been in Asia will, of just ox carts. You know? And the wheel of the ox cart just keeps on following inevitably the foot of the ox. If we speak or act with an impure motive, suffering follows in just the same way. Then the Buddha said, if we speak or act with a pure mind, a pure heart, wholesome motivation, happiness follows us like our shadow. And there's just one interesting little commentary on those two images. The wheel following the foot of the ox happens at some distance. And so suffering may not come immediately, but it follows. Whereas the shadow is right there. The shadow is right in the moment. And that's the nature of the happiness that comes when our motives are pure. The happiness is right in that moment. We don't even have to wait for it. So this is our practice. Learning to see and purify our motivation. It's not always easy because our motives are often not clear. I mean, in, in the complexities of our lives and our activities and our relationships, there's a lot going on. And we may have mixed motives. Sometimes we don't even know what they are. They're obscure. And sometimes there's a whole series of conflicting motives. Just one story in that regard, <coughs> regard illustrating the complexity of our minds. 
I was on retreat. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. And I was reading through some of the Buddhist discourses, the suttas. And I came across one discourse uh, on faith. And I thought, this will be a great story. This will be a great discourse uh, to show Sharon, who's writing a book on faith. Okay, I need to back up a little bit and give the context for this whole story. And that is that among Dharma teachers, there's fierce competition for a good story. <laughs> it's like, we're like story vultures. Okay, so that's the background. Okay, so I'm um, reading this, and my very first thought, my first thought is, boy, this will be a great story for Sharon's book. My next thought, my very next thought, now I'm going to keep this for myself. <laughs> my third thought, no, I'll give it to her, but given the law of karma, more stories will come back to me. <laughs> and then I thought, no, that's just being selfish. I'll give her the story, but I'll tell her everything that went on in my mind about it. You know, sort of hoping to inculcate a little debt. <laughs> so I was just, because I was on retreat, I was, I was just following my mind, doing all this. So then I started thinking, where in the world is that moment of generosity? You know, in the complexity, in the whole whirlwind of different motives and thoughts, where can I reconnect with that place just of simple generosity? And I saw that even though my mind went through that whole scenario, that that moment of generosity actually was there. And it was there in the very first thought. So even though it went on that little trip, I realized that I could come back to that first moment of generosity. So even though it was mixed and conflicting motives, it was always there to come back to. So that was a tremendous understanding that we don't need to be discouraged by the mix of motivation if we find one in the mix that's pure and we're mindful, we can see all the rest, okay, then we come back to it. So at the end of my retreat, and this is the PS, I show the story to Sharon, she didn't even want it. <laughs> and actually, this turned out to be the better story. <laughs> you know, we also have mixed motivations, I'm sure, even for coming on retreat among all of us, and in our own minds, we probably have a mix of motives. But there is one aspect of the Buddhist teaching. There is one motivation that is so vast and so ennobling of our lives that it actually can become 
the bottom line reference point for our entire spiritual journey. So underneath all of this mix of different motives, there is one underneath them all that is so profoundly skillful and inspiring that we can use that as a reference point. And in the Pali and Sanskrit languages, this is called the motivation of bodhicitta. In bodhicitta, bodhi is the Pali and Sanskrit word for awakening or enlightenment or wisdom. Jitta is the Pali and Sanskrit word for heart or heart-mind. Because in many Asian languages, it's the same word. In the West, we make it two things, but we really need to think of it as one thing, the heart-mind of awareness. So we could say bodhicitta is the heart, the awakened, the enlightened heart, the enlightened mind. And what it means specifically is that deep aspiration, that deep motivation within us to awaken from the dream of our ignorance, from the dream of our forgetfulness, of our delusion, in order to benefit all beings. This is the aspiration of bodhicitta. The wish to awaken from ignorance in order to be of benefit to all. And so it's the dedication of our spiritual practice, and more than that, it's the dedication of our lives to the benefit and the welfare and the happiness of all. This is a powerful seed to plant within ourselves. More specifically, we could think or understand this aspiration of bodhicitta as the practice of compassion and compassionate action. And compassion here means that strong feeling or the strong wish that arises to alleviate the suffering of beings. That's what compassion means, the wish to alleviate the suffering of beings. And it arises, compassion arises, when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, when we allow ourselves to open to it in ourselves and in others. But this is a profound and difficult practice. It's not easy to do. We may want to be compassionate, and often perhaps we feel that we are. But when we look at our lives, we see it's really difficult, this willingness to come close to suffering, to open to it. It's not easy to do, because as you've noticed here on retreat, I'm sure, Just as we don't really like to be with our own pain, we don't necessarily want to be with the pain of others. I mean, maybe theoretically we do, but in the actual moment, do we? 
Now, if you're sitting and there's some discomfort, there's pain in the body that arises, or some emotional pain, is there that sense of willingness to open to it, to feel it, to feel the suffering, or do we notice all kinds of resistance? There are very strong tendencies in our mind that keep us defended in the face of suffering, or indifferent, or apathetic, where we're just not connected, we're not allowing ourselves to relate to it. I'd like to read a poem, a part of a poem, by Mary Oliver, who is a really wonderful poet. And it just touches this issue. And this is the right time of year for it. The title of the poem is Beyond the Snow Belt. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. But two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north, to us, is far away. A wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards, we watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And given the inundation of communication in our world, of hearing disasters all over the world, all the time. I found it so resonant, this poem. It's except as we have loved, all the news arrives as from a distant land. So the question then, and it's a challenging question, how can we, or is it even possible, to begin loving those people who live two counties north, or three countries south, or people who live across the ocean? Is it possible, in any way, to begin to practice opening ourselves to feel the suffering that's there? We need to start with ourselves and the situations closest to us. That's where the practice begins. If we can't open to the pain or difficulty or suffering that's right here in our own bodies and minds, it will be impossible to open it more widely. We need to start, we need to practice right here with ourselves, with the difficulties that are present. And again, it can be something relatively simple or low difficult as physical discomfort or pain, opening to emotional distress. So much of practice, especially as 
we practiced in Asia was learning this lesson on one level or another. There are so many stories to draw from. One of, one of my favorites is just popping into my mind. I had been in India practicing for some time, really de- devoted to the practice, very committed, very enthusiastic. I had gone there to get enlightened. <laughs> well, India in the summertime, the summer months, the summer there gets unbearably hot, like 120 degrees, 125 degrees. It's really, really hot. And so whoever can heads for the hills. And the hills there are beautiful. They're called hill stations, actually, and they're you know, about seven, six, seven, eight thousand feet, the foothills of the Himalayas. And so some of us would rent these little cottages uh, up in the hill stations to continue our practice. So I get all settled in and very devoted, just doing my intensive sitting and walking. About a month after I was there, in the field just below my little cottage, this troop of what were called the Delhi girls came up from New Delhi and camped out in this field. And that's kind of a paramilitary Girl Scout thing. That was fine. There was no problem with that. But they set up these loudspeakers. And from 6 in the morning till 10 at night, blaring Hindi film music. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) So I'm sitting there and here... I've come to Holy Mother India to get enlightened. And (laughs) so my mind just went through incredible range of emotion, you know, of rage and frustration and anger and ill will. And I was writing all these letters to the mayor. And and I couldn't believe that nobody else was bothered by this. (laughs) Don't they? Anyway. There was nothing to do. It was completely out of my control. And so there I was sitting, and it took weeks of going through all of these strong reactions to this unpleasantness. It was really suffering for me. Until at a certain point, my mind surrendered. Okay, it's just sound. And instead of trying to keep it out, which was impossible and endlessly frustrating. I just let down the defenses, let down the barriers, let down all that reactivity and let it in. And then I was just sitting, doing my practice, and the sound was coming through, and it was no problem at all. And it was such an incredible lesson in how the problem with unpleasant experience is not in the unpleasant experience itself. It's in our resistance to it, our tensing, our contracting. It's not that the unpleasant becomes pleasant. It's that we stop fighting with it, we stop struggling with it. We get to that place of, okay, this is okay. And a lot of our practice, whether it's in the metta or the vipassana, Our practice and our life keeps bringing us to edges of what we'll allow in. This much is comfortable, but over that line, we don't like it. 
Well, our practice is just to keep extending those boundaries. And my imagination of the Buddha mind, the fully awakened mind, would be the mind without any boundaries. Totally open, where anything that happens is fine. Imagine the freedom in that. There would be no fear. There would be no walls. There would be no defensiveness. And so we practice at whatever our edge is. It's really learning to be with things as they are, as they present themselves. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion. Because compassion comes when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering. Mindfulness makes it possible. So right effort here, in terms of opening to suffering, allowing ourselves to be with it, it does not mean struggle. It does not mean striving. It's not efforting. I think it's much more the quality of courage. You know, that strength of heart, and the word courage comes from the word for heart. Courage is that strength of heart which is willing to be present. And the interesting place of practice is precisely those places where it's challenging. Because those are the places that are defining our limits, defining our edges. So right there, at that place, can we relax the heart? Can we open further? This is our practice. Now something quite amazing starts to happen. Because as we learn to open to the suffering or difficulty or pain in our own experience, in our own lives, with greater ease and greater openness, we find then that we can be with the suffering of others with greater ease and openness and insight and courage and compassion. We no longer have to protect ourselves This happens in stages and on different levels. Now at first, we might feel ourselves opening to feelings of empathy. Empathy is that quality where we slow down enough to actually be there for a moment with another person and feel what they're feeling. Because usually in our rushed, busy lives, we're so busy rushing by that we hardly have time to take that moment, to be there with another person. But I think we've all had the experience you know, of that, that sense of empathy before we pick up the rush of our lives. But compassion is really something more than empathy. It's not just feeling the suffering of others. Compassion contains within it the motivation to do something, to act, to want to alleviate it. Thich Nhat Hanh, the you know, wonderful Vietnamese meditation master and poet and peace activist, 
he had a wonderful expression for this. He said, compassion is a verb. Because that's really the defining characteristic of compassion. It's not simply empathy, which is a wonderful quality. Compassion takes it a step further. Compassion takes it to the place of action. What can I do to help alleviate the suffering? An interesting experiment to make both while you're here on retreat and as you leave the retreat and go back into your life in the world. Just as as an investigative reporter of your own life, pay attention to what the mind does when it starts to come close to situations of suffering. Whether one's own or someone else's, someone you know, someone you don't know. Just to watch, what does our mind do? What do our minds do? Do we pull back? Are we a little afraid of opening to it? Do we open? Do we really feel the empathy and compassion? Do we walk right by it? Are we indifferent? It's only by paying attention that we can begin to open to other possibilities. This one, it's a, it's a rather sad story. These tendencies of the mind we have in the face of suffering. This was told by a friend of ours, a colleague, who was in a hospital for surgery and she needed to uh, have a lot of, it was either blood tests or IVs or something. And whoever was you know, trying to draw the blood or, or insert the IV, having a lot of trouble uh, finding the vein. And so you probably know or can imagine what that's like. You know, and you try, 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 and you can't find the vein. Very difficult. And she was going through a hard time anyway for, for serious surgery. And so she was getting kind of paler and paler and you know, really not feeling well at all. And the attendant, whoever it was who was trying to do this, comment was, oh, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I mean, a total disconnect. You know, I, probably it was meant well. You know, but it was a total disconnect from what was actually happening. And I just found it interesting because I think we probably all do that in different situations at different levels. So if we are really planting the seed of bodhicitta and trying to practice compassion and compassionate action, we need to be watchful of our own responses in the face of suffering. Notice when we close off. Notice when we can open. The practice of bodhicitta means that on some level there is an active engagement with the suffering that's in the world. That we're not pulling back from it. It's responding to the many and various needs of different beings in whatever way in a particular situation is appropriate or possible. 
And there are so many stories of people who are willing to come close to suffering and respond compassionately. And it may be in very small, unregarded ways. Maybe it's just a gesture of friendliness or generosity or kindness to the people we live with. It can be as simple and as ordinary as that. Sometimes this action of compassionate response is really heroic and courageous. I was just uh, recently a documentary on the life of uh, Martin Luther King, and the segment I saw was describing his last visit to Memphis, Tennessee, to aid to lead the march uh, with the striking garbage collectors in Memphis. And it was a very extremely tense, very violent time. And as you probably remember, that's when he was assassinated. And they had a lot of the film, film footage from that time. And it was so remarkable just to see the quality of his compassion for these fellow beings who were suffering and his willingness in very, in this case, fatal circumstances to put himself there and be there. It was was hugely inspiring of somebody not turning away. So sometimes it's in very little things, just with the people around us. Sometimes situations arise and it's tremendously heroic. You know, the Buddha, the story of the Buddha, who's spent countless lifetimes striving for Buddhahood for the sake of benefiting all other beings. We are benefiting here now in Barry, Massachusetts, 2,500 years later, something that happened to this person under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, India. And the consequences, the rippling effect is enormous. There's no particular prescription for compassionate action. It's not as if there's a hierarchy, you know, and some kinds of actions are better than others or more compassionate than others. We, if we are practicing bodhicitta, if we have this aspiration to live for the benefit of all, we will each find our own way, our own interests, our own inclinations, our own abilities. Because the field of compassion, compassionate action, is limitless. It's the field of suffering beings. Maybe it will be active engagement, social, political action. It might be a life of seclusion. Could be living in a cave, practicing metta. Could be as compassionate action, if it's done with that intention to benefit others. I'd like to read two short quotations from people very, very far apart in time and location who appreciate what we're doing here. One of them was the Sufi mystic poet Rumi, who is one of the great beings 
of all times. And if you have not familiar with his writings, this complete, open, non-sectarian joy and celebration of the Spirit. He said, he lived in the 13th century, uh, and I think what's now Asia Minor, Turkey. Which is worth more, a crowd of thousands or your own inner solitude? Freedom or power over an entire nation? A little while alone in your room will prove more valuable than anything else that could ever be given you. We're kind of spending time, it's a big room, (laughs) spending time alone with ourselves. This is from uh, Pascal, who was a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher. He said, most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. There's an amazing power that comes from understanding ourselves. Because when we understand our own minds, our own hearts, our own motivations, that awareness, that understanding, gives us the power to choose. And from the choices we make and the actions we do, there's this vast rippling out effect. As we transform our minds, we transform the world. So how can we practice this cultivation of bodhicitta, this aspiration to live for the benefit of all beings? Within the different Buddhist traditions, two different ways are mentioned, two different approaches. In the Pali texts, the Theravada tradition, which this is really part of, the Buddha talks a lot about how by taking care of ourselves, we take care of others. By purifying our own minds, hearts of greed, of fear, of hatred, automatically we take care of others. I mean, it's so obvious. If there's less hatred in us, less anger, less judgment, everyone around us benefits. The example given is of two people kind of sinking in the bottom of a muddy river, It's very difficult for either one of them to really be of help to each other because they're both sinking. If one person gets some grounding on on solid ground, then it's easy to help the other person to shore. And so this approach emphasizes, yes, we need to do this inner work ourselves. And on the basis of that, we then have the understanding and the strength to help others. The other approach, the other way to develop bodhicitta was expressed by this great Indian adept centuries after the Buddha. His name was Shantideva. And he wrote this little treatise called The Guide, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. A bodhisattva is a being dedicated to the welfare of all. This this little treatise is a guide to living that way. And the Dalai Lama is a great devotee of Shantideva and is a shining example of the fruit of that practice. 
The basic message in Shantideva is that we practice bodhicitta by putting others before ourselves, by thinking of others as being more important than ourselves. And by practicing in that way over and over again in all the situations of our lives, seeing others as being more important, that that develops that open-heartedness. I want to read just a few lines from Shantideva. It's called The Seven-Branched Prayer. And it just expresses this way of practice. So this is the seven-branched prayer. He said, For everything that lives, as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. And raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient being, those poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure. My body and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. It's quite an aspiration to dedicate one's so completely, oneself so completely and so fully, that that is the guiding principle in one's life, to bring about the welfare, the benefit of others. So it's possible to hear this and one at the same time perhaps become very inspired by the possibility, but also a little overwhelmed. I mean, given the great mix of our motivations, I'll give her the story, I won't give her the story. (laughs) I mean, how could we even hope to live like this? It's such a vast aspiration. Well, I think we can follow the lead of the Dalai Lama, who was a great devotee of this practice. With his customary humility, he said, I can't really pretend to practice bodhicitta. It's the Dalai Lama speaking. But deep inside me, I know how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So we don't want to kind of hear this possibility of this kind of aspiration, you know, and create this idealistic picture in our mind. Oh, yes, I'm going to just live completely for the benefit of all. It would be great if we could do it but it has to be grounded in where we are. And sometimes I think it's simply a question of planting the seed, planting the seed of this aspiration so that it acts as a reminder to us. These two approaches, even though they sound different, the first is take care of oneself and by doing that we'll take care of others. The second approach, put others before oneself. They actually complement each other beautifully. They're two sides of the same thing. 
and may mitigate against the dangers of each. Because if it's only the side of taking care of oneself, we could lose that altruistic motivation and it could become a little self-involved. And so we balance it by the side of putting others before oneself. But if we only put others before oneself, it could be easy to fall into a kind of neurotic codependence you know, where we're not taking care of ourselves. And we're doing that in an unwholesome way. And so when we see both sides, yes, we take care of ourselves, we get ourselves on some dry land in order to benefit others. And we realize that by taking care of others, by putting others before self, we are also purifying our own hearts and minds. And so we interweave these two sides in a way that we can actually practice. We plant the seed. We plant the seed of bodhicitta. This aspiration. Maybe it's even having the aspiration to have the aspiration. Maybe that's what we need to be doing. But just that small seed of a possibility that this could be a way to live. This could be a way to practice. And even when we're not, even when we're not coming from that place of compassion, having planted the seed, it illuminates our actions and reminds us that there might be other choices. It helps to wake us up. I'd just like to close with a very simple teaching the Dalai Lama gave. He said, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.